Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. We are in week 2 of an 8-week series called Rhythms. Uh, In this time in the months of June and July, we have uh, set aside these weeks so that we can think together about the rhythms of work and rest and recreation, how we live into these rhythms, how they, how they work together, uh, how they are interdependent upon one another for us to have the life that God has designed for us to live. And last week, we kicked off our series by looking at God's good design in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And what we saw there is that ultimately work is a good thing. Work is a blessing. In a world before sin entered the picture, we see God doing something. God is at work in his creation. And we see God creating man in a world without sin. And man is given an assignment, a task to complete. Man is working, bearing the image of God. Everything is good and beautiful and harmonious and integrated and perfect. And we all understand that that is not the way things are today. Something has happened, something has caused things to go wrong, and we know what that is. That is sin. Sin has affected and infected God's perfect design for creation. And we're going to think together today about the corruption of our work. In Genesis chapter 3, a new character comes on the scene. Uh, That character is the serpent. He comes to Eve and he tempts her to disobey God. He offers her the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil that God has forbidden. He tempts her to take it, and eventually she does so. And we're going to pick up with the effects of that decision in Genesis chapter 3. We'll begin reading in verse 7 and read through verse 19. This is God's Word. Then the eyes of both, that's both Adam and Eve, were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave it, who gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And Adam, to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of dust you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Let's pray together.
Father, these are hard words and these are good words. These are good words because they explain something of the problem that we experience in this life. Every one of us experienced the frustration, the futility of work this week in some way. And we want to have eyes to see and hearts to discern what you're doing in human history, to understand the times in which we live, to understand the work that you have given to us and what you're doing in the midst of work that often feels futile and hard and disappointing. I pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding and insight as we consider your word. We need your words. So speak to us, we pray, so that we might know you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple days ago this week, I was talking with a a friend. Uh, We were commiserating over some common parenting struggles we were both dealing with, and he told me about some well-intended but ultimately unhelpful perspectives that someone close to him had shared with him, basically simple solutions to his parenting problems that were ultimately complex issues, overly simplified counsel. And as he reflected on this, he said, you know, man, I understand that that's how it should be, but that's just not the way it is. And when he said that, I thought, you know what, that's a really simple and profound and poignant analysis of what it's like to live and work and parent and minister under the curse of God because of sin. Last week, we saw the beautiful, enjoyable, integrated design of God's creation. That's how it should be. But because of sin, that's just not the way it is. Because of sin, our lives in a fallen world and our work are characterized by disintegration, decay, and disruption. The first thing that is abundantly clear in this text is our first point. Work is cursed. Work is cursed. And if we're going to understand how to navigate life under the curse, we're going to need to have wisdom and insight as to what's really taking place when God delivers the curse to us in our work. So we remember this this tree that God places in the garden where man and woman, where Adam and Eve are given to cultivate and work. And God says, you're one rule, your one job, your one prohibition in this beauty and this abundance that I've created for you is to not eat the fruit of this one particular tree. And vats of ink have been spilled throughout human history as to what the significance of that tree was. What was so special about this tree that caused the curse of sin to come? And I think probably the best answer to that question is nothing in particular. I don't think there was any sort of special divine mojo on that tree or special juice in the fruit of that tree that caused all of this to unravel. I think the best way to understand that tree is as a picture of God's invitation to us to trust Him and to believe that He's wise and He's good. And placing them in the garden and saying, don't eat of that tree, God is saying to Adam and Eve, and by extension to us, will you trust me? Will you trust me because I'm God and because I'm good? And we need to understand this. That is, that's the heart of God behind all of the commands that we read in Scripture. Do you know that? Anytime we look in this book, in the Bible, and it says, do this or don't do that, we need to understand what that is. That is not God trying to deprive us of something. That's not God trying to withhold from us something that will be good for us. No, in fact, it's quite the opposite. 
God's commands in the Scriptures are invitations for us to joy. They're invitations for us to live into God's good design for the world. God made the world. He made everything, and He understands better than anyone how it's supposed to work. God's commands are meant to lead us into peace and joy. And so to our sinful desire to hoard our money and to spend all of our resources on ourselves and just to obtain, 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 God, God speaks and he says, no, I've got, a, I've got a better design than that for money. The path to joy in relationship to finances is to be a good steward, to live generously, to be satisfied with less than what you think you need. To give your money away and to, to live a generous Life, that's the good life. It's not the accumulation of wealth and riches. Don't cash it in for something that won't deliver the joy that you'll get if you live according to my design. To our sinful desire to pursue sexual fulfillment outside of God's good design for marriage, God says, I have a a good design for your sexuality. It's in covenant faithfulness within the context of of marriage as I've created it to exist. Don't seek joy and delight in other contexts because you won't find it. It won't deliver for you because I've designed it to work in this specific way. Life works best for us when we live in accordance with God's design. My son, Titus, our little guy, uh, the baby of the family, he has a hard time navigating the complexities of the button-down shirt. Uh, he, when Katie sends the kids up on Sunday mornings to get ready for church, uh, it never fails that Titus, he, he starts out well, he, he gets the shirt going, but by the time he ends up downstairs, he's got like, it's upside down and inside out somehow. His arms are going through the wrong holes. He has two like non-adjacent buttons done and he's sort of trapped in the shirt. It's, it's pretty adorable, but it's a complete mess. Uh, and the, the point is that, of that is that the shirt is fine. The shirt is designed to work, but it's only meant to work in a certain way. You can't just put on the shirt however you want. And God's command to Adam and Eve, God's commands to us in Scripture are God's way of saying, I made the shirt. I know how the shirt is supposed to work. Wear it rightly, and it'll serve you well. You know, you're, you're starting to understand God's heart for you. When you begin to read the Bible, not simply as a code of morality, but rather as a, as a map of God's reality. Does that make sense? God made the world. He made us, and He knows what will lead to our flourishing and to our joy. He knows what the good life is. And He's inviting us to share in that good life through obedience to Him. And the question to us is the same question that was put to Adam and Eve. Will you trust Will you believe that God is good and entrust yourself to Him? And for Adam and Eve, the answer was a resounding no. They failed to trust God. The serpent had promised them that if they eat this forbidden fruit, they will become like God. And in a sense, Adam and Eve do become like God. Like disobedient children, they decide for themselves what's right and wrong and how the world should work best. And the results are absolutely catastrophic. The image of God in man is now distorted. The beauty of God's design for the world is now marred. The harmony of God's creation is now dissonant. 
and the rhythms of life that God designed for us to inhabit, we're now off the beat. Just to let you behind the curtain for a minute, uh, the band here plays with something that's called a click track. Uh, basically what a click track is, it's, it's a governor that plays in the monitors of the musicians the exact beats per minute of the song, and it never wavers. It plays it perfectly for them to hear it, and then they play along with it. And that's how our band is able to stay in, in pretty much perfect rhythm when we play. You thought it was just because Pete Butler is so great and Rob Eisenberg's a machine. And they are, that's true. But this has happened to us before. What happens when the band goes off the beat? The song just completely unravels. And that's exactly what happens as a result of the sin of Adam and Eve, their rebellion against God. Everything unravels. Identity begins to unravel. What do they immediately notice once they've sinned? They realize they're naked. They experience the sting of shame for the first time. And they sew together fig leaves and they try to hide from God. Relationships begin to unravel. God, God calls Adam and Eve to account for what they've done. And what does Adam say? He blame shifts. He says, it's not my fault. It's this woman. And this woman that you gave me, man. What, what's the deal? Why'd you give her to me? This is your fault, God. Eve's no better. The serpent, the serpent gave it to me and I ate. It's the serpent's fault. And God delivers the curse. First, he speaks to the woman. He says, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. And all the moms said, Amen. I've been in the room for a couple of these things. It's a bad situation, y'all. <laughs> and in a way, it's a, it's a picture of, of this Genesis 1 through 3. Like, it's, it's, it's God's good gift coming. It's this miraculous thing. God's created life. A person is there where there was no person before. That's wonderful and beautiful and good, but, but it comes by means of incredible pain, great suffering. Later in verse 16, God says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. There is a variety of, of interpretations of what that text actually means, but certainly it means no less than this. Our relationships in marriage are now characterized by conflicts. Dysfunction, relational strife. Then he turns to the man in verse 17. Now we're starting to get into the realm of, of our subject for this morning and work. He says, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you will eat of it all the days of your life. Work is no longer going to be easy and smooth and fulfilling as it was designed to be. It will now be back-breaking, vexing, and difficult. It says, in thorns and thistles you shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. He's saying good stuff will come, fruit will come from your labors, but bad stuff is going to come right alongside it. So your grass is going to grow, but the weeds are going to come up right along with it. You're going to finish that group project and get it in under deadline, but the team is going to fight about fonts and margins and who gets the credit all the way through to the end. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. You are dust. And to dust you shall return. Your life, Adam, is now going to look like this. You're going to sweat it out. You're going to sweat out a living. And then one day you are going to die. As a result of the effects 
of sin. Work is now unpleasant, it's unfulfilling, and it's unfinished. We aspire to far more than we will ever be able to accomplish. As a result of sin, life and work come completely unraveled. Here's what philosopher Al Walters says about this. The Bible teaches plainly that Adam and Eve's fall into sin was not just an isolated act of disobedience, but an event of catastrophic significance for the creation as a whole. The effects of sin touch all of creation. No created thing is in principle untouched by the corrosive effects of the fall. Whether we look at societal structures such as the state of the family or cultural pursuits such as art or technology or body functions such as sexuality or eating or anything at all within the wide scope of creation, we discover that the good handiwork of God has been drawn into the sphere of mutiny against God. The whole creation, Paul writes, has been groaning and is subject to bondage and decay. And so... We experience life in a totally different way than the integrated world of Genesis 1 and 2. And guys, this, this reality of sin and the curse of sin in our lives, this isn't just an abstract theological reality we understand. It's a life situation that we experience, isn't it? We live this out as an existential sort of reality in our lives. Work is cursed. That's our first point. But work is frustrating. That's our second point. It's frustrating. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We're going to camp out here for the rest of our time. You know, there is no book in the Bible that, uh, that for my money, captures the existential experience of life under the curse. Quite like the book of Ecclesiastes. It's one of my favorite books in the whole Bible. It's very timely for our day and for our age and for the cultural narratives and questions that that we're asking today. Ecclesiastes is narrated by this character called Koheleth. That word just means gatherer or, or teacher or philosopher. And in the introduction of this book, he calls himself a king in Israel and identifies himself as a son of King David. And it's generally accepted that the writer of this book is King Solomon. And there's no good reason for us not to accept that that's true. And we have some insight into what Solomon was like and what his life was like. And Solomon was a man of excessive excessiveness. I don't even know if you can do that to the English language, but, but that's what, what life was about for Solomon. Everything he did, he did it big. And he writes in this book about the struggle to make sense of life. And over and over again, he comes back to this refrain. Life under the sun is vanity. And by vanity, he means it, this perplexing, circular repetitiveness that characterizes our life under the sun. And so you cut the grass yesterday, guess what you're going to have to do next Saturday? You have to mow it again. You did the laundry pile, you vanquished it yesterday, guess what? It's going to start piling up again. It's already, it's already going, I hate to tell you. You changed that diaper, took care of that, just going to fill it up again. You finally mastered your email inbox. You achieved the unicorn of inbox zero. The emails are already coming in. This is the vanity of life under the sun that Solomon describes in Ecclesiastes. And, and there's, a, there's a weightiness that comes when we realize that this is, this is the life that we're consigned to because of sin. There's a weightiness to that. And he wants his readers to feel it and to understand it and to make his... To make his case, in chapters 1 and 2, he narrates 
three quests for meaning that he undertakes. Three quests for, uh, for significance in the midst of a, of a fallen world. The first quest at the end of chapter 1 is the quest for knowledge. To accumulate knowledge and, and wisdom and insight. And he, he achieved that in spades. He got it beyond anyone who had ever lived. He applied it to life. He applied it to matters of philosophy and understanding. And his assessment at the end of it all was what? It's vanity. It's meaningless. His second quest is for, is for pleasure. When his quest for knowledge fails, he, he seeks uh, meaning in life through the pursuit of pleasure in chapter 2. So entertainment, the best shows, the finest screenplays, the most beautiful art, the funniest comedians. He experiences it all. He gets wine and food beyond anything we can imagine. First Kings chapter 4 says that his daily provision of food for Solomon was enough to feed 35,000 people. That's eating well. <laughs> he looks to the accumulation of stuff. He buys houses and, and gardens and servants and herds and flocks and goats. He, he seeks it through physical pleasure, through many wives and concubines. And his pursuit in the quest of pleasure to find meaning and significance, what does he say at the end of it? That too is vanity. Look at verse 11 of chapter 2. He says, Then I considered that all my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. And then in chapter 2, in the later part, he turns to the third quest, the quest to find meaning and significance through work, through achievement. Here's what he says. Let's begin reading in verse 17. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. And I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity. And a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun for all his days are full of sorrow? And his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. What does he find at the end of his quest for meaning and significance through his work? He hates it. He hates his work. I hate the laundry pile. I hate the alarm on Monday morning, I hate the expense reports. I hate the drop-off and pick-up line at school. I hate making the widgets. I hate writing the code. I hate selling the new product. I hate all of it. It's meaningless to me. And he identifies in, in these verses two reasons for why his work is frustrating. First, work is frustrating because it doesn't last. Your life's work, it gets left behind. You can't take it with you when you go. That's what verse 18 says. I must leave it to the man who will come after me. In a short while, that house that you designed and decorated so perfectly, somebody else is going to be living in that. In a short while, that company that you, that you gave blood to build, somebody else is going to be sitting in the CEO's chair. And all the awards and honors and accolades that you've accumulated through your hard work, 
in the end, they're going to take up space in somebody else's storage unit. You can't take it with you. Malcolm Forbes, who was the publisher of Forbes magazine, is, is attributed with the terrible quote, he who dies with the most toys wins. Have you heard that? And that's not a very satisfying answer to this problem that Solomon is identifying, is it? It's so obviously unsatisfying that when I was in high school, they made a no fear t-shirt out of this. You remember no fear t-shirts? I'm dating myself here. I, I apologize. No fear would take like slogans and sometimes spin them and put them on a shirt. You could like feel good about how clever you were by the saying on your shirt. So they took this saying and they flipped it and they said, he who dies with the most toys still dies. Which is about as insightful as a t-shirt's going to get. It's all going to go to somebody else. And what about this? What, what about the inheritor of your stuff? Who knows, verse 19, whether he'll be wise or a fool. They might squander all that I worked for. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal that, uh, not too long ago that pointed to research that said 70% of family wealth that's passed down to a second generation evaporates before the third generation. Life's work, just gone. Verse 21, Sometimes a person who is toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. Sometimes you end up just giving a leg up to somebody who doesn't deserve it and who can't steward it well. You probably hear the expression, some people are born on third base, go through life thinking they hit a triple. (laughs) Solomon's like, that's not satisfying. There's a cruel irony here too for, for Solomon to say this because who ultimately inherited all of Solomon's wealth? King Rehoboam. In King Rehoboam, we have, we have a history recounted for us in the Old Testament of what happened under King Rehoboam's reign. He was such a foolish and bad king. He was the one who was responsible for breaking the nation of Israel into two kingdoms through his, through his, uh, his heavy-handed leadership in Israel. And as a result of them being fractured into two nations, in 2 Kings chapter 12, we see the story of Egypt coming. The king of Egypt comes and and conquers Israel. They lay siege to Jerusalem and they end, off carry, they end up carrying off, check this out, ten twelfths of Solomon's treasure. Just like that. It's gone. What you're building may not last. You know, just this past week, uh, the baseball player Ichiro Suzuki broke Pete Rose's long-standing record for most career hits in professional baseball. And this has not come without some controversy. And the controversy is because the first third or so of the hits Ichiro got as a professional weren't in Major League Baseball. He got those hits playing in the Japanese Professional Baseball League. And so there's, there's, great, there's no small dispute that's arisen over whether or not Ichiro is the true hit king or not. And so USA Today, when interviewed Pete Rose about this controversy, and here's what Pete Rose said about this. He said, quote, they're trying to make me the hit queen. I'm not trying to take anything away from Ichiro. He's had a Hall of Fame career. But the next thing you know, they'll be counting his high school hits. I don't think you're going to find anybody with credibility who says that Japanese baseball is equivalent to major league baseball. And listen, whether or not 
he has a point, and whether or not we should think of Ichiro as the hit king is, is beyond the scope of what we're thinking about today. But do you hear the identity question, the satisfaction question behind what Pete Rose is saying? What does it mean if my record is gone? If I'm not the hit king, then who am I? What if my work doesn't last? We want to build something that endures, and it's frustrating to us that our work won't endure. It's the first reason work is frustrating under the curse. The second is work is frustrating because it just doesn't satisfy us. Look at what he says in verse 22. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. The work that we do, even the success we enjoy in our work, it doesn't satisfy our hearts like it should. It brings pain to our souls. What do you really have to show for your work? Not only does it not last, but it makes me miserable. Even in the night, you get no rest. How many of you have lost sleep even in the last week over your to-do list at work? Over that problem that you just can't figure out how to solve? Or that conflict you have with a coworker that just seems to have no resolution in sight? I lost sleep this week over this message. You know this lack of satisfaction. You experience it in whatever whatever realm God's called you to work. So if you're in academia, you know that constant, steady pressure to publish and to write. You can't even enjoy the work that you are doing because you're constantly having to compare yourself to other people in your field. Some of you work in the service industry, and you know you can have a hundred great customers in a row, but it's going to be that one person who treats you like something less than a human. You're going to take the memory of that home with you at night. Some of you work in the medical field and you, you, you're faced with the lack of satisfaction that comes when, when people don't heed your advice. They don't do the things you tell them to do. They don't cut out the sugar. They don't stop smoking. They don't do whatever it is you tell them to do. Every one of us probably has experienced a difficult boss. You just can never seem to satisfy them. They keep moving the goalposts. On you. And how long does this frustration last? Verse 23, all the days of his life. Work doesn't satisfy, it's just vexation. You're thinking, now, thank you very much, Pastor. I'm now sufficiently depressed about my job. But there is comfort for us. There's comfort for us in the curse. That's our last point. Look at verse 24 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. His narrative takes an unexpected turn here. Solomon says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Solomon says, Something interesting here. This is the first unqualified positive statement in the entire book of Ecclesiastes. He draws a sharp distinction between the experience of work for a person who receives enjoyment of it as a gift from God 
and the one who doesn't. And what he's pointing out to us here is that the difference between enjoying your toil or finding your toil only to be meaningless and only to be vain is whether or not you are able to see your work, even your cursed work, as a good gift from God's hand. Here's the thing about the message of Ecclesiastes. It is not simply that life is vanity. It is also that in the midst of that vain life, joy is offered to us from the gracious hand of a sovereign God. Both of those things are true. Those are realities that that live in tension in our lives in a fallen world. Both of them are true, though. There's an old cartoon in which uh, a publisher is arguing with Charles Dickens over the opening lines of A Tale of Two Cities. And the man says to Dickens, Listen, Mr. Dickens, either it was the best of times or it was the worst of times. It cannot be both. But you and I both know that's not true. It can be both. In fact, most often it is both. The first comfort we can take in the midst of the curse is that work is not only frustrating. Work is also fulfilling. It's not only fruitless, it's also fruitful. Remember Genesis 3.18? In thorns and thistles you bring, you'll bring forth, but you'll also eat the plants of the field. There's going to be thorns and thistles that come with your work, but there's going to be food as well. There will be hardship and heartache, but there will be a measure of satisfaction that can come in our work because we bear the image of God. And a measure of the satisfaction that he takes in his work is available to us as well. So our work is not simply frustrating. It is not simply vain. It can also be fulfilling. I remember when I, years and years ago, I used to be a stock clerk at Publix. And I remember the feeling of coming in really, really early in the morning and you'd see your aisle just completely decimated by the people who had shopped there the night before. And there are your boxes, as far as the eye can see, of product to replenish those shelves. And you'd stand back after three or four hours of work and you would see just a wall, completely full, completely stocked shelf. And you'd have that feeling of, yes, that's what I did. There's my last few hours of work. And it was a good feeling. That feeling's a little tougher to get in ministry sometimes. Because people are always unfinished. That's the nature of it. But we get little glimpses of that. Of the work we were made for. Work is not only frustrating, it is fulfilling. The second source of comfort for us in the curse is this. The curse is not ultimate in our work. God is ultimate in our work. Solomon continues to expound on the theme that he started in verse 24 In chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, look there with me if you would. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Listen to this. I love these are beautiful words. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people 
fear before him. Here's the point. Here is the difference between seeing your work and your life and everything that God has called you to as meaningless and vain or seeing it as meaningful and receiving it as a gift. God is ultimate in the midst of it. When you've seen that God has made everything beautiful in its time, when you've seen with the eyes of faith that God has put eternity in your hearts to long for the perfection of his design, to long for the fulfillment that can only come from him, when you've seen the sovereign goodness of God in your life, it frees you to enjoy your work. And even if your work doesn't last, you you can enjoy it knowing that the work of God endures forever, verse 14. And even if you struggle to find satisfaction in your work, you can be satisfied because you, there's full satisfaction offered to us in Christ. Ultimately, we are able to enjoy our corrupted work only when enjoying our work isn't the point of our work. The point is enjoying Christ and the identity that He has secured for us in Him. And we're enabled by the grace of God to work from meaning and significance in our work to no longer to work for meaning and significance in our work. I'll close with this. Um, Ray Ortland Jr. followed his father, Ray Ortland Sr., into pastoral ministry. And Ray Ortland Sr. was uh, an incredibly godly man. There's a great tribute that Ray Ortland Jr. has written to his father that's on the Desiring God blog right now for Father's Day. And at the end of Ray Ortland Sr.'s life, uh, he was in the hospital. He knew that his time was coming, and he gathered his children around him to uh, pronounce a blessing over each of them. And Ray Jr. wasn't able to be there. He was in Europe with his family at the time ministering there. And uh, Ray Ortland Sr. gave a blessing to all of his children And he gave one to his daughter to be delivered to Ray Jr. when they saw him again. And his blessing to his son who had followed him into pastoral ministry was this. Tell Ray that ministry isn't everything. Jesus is. And I think that's the message that gives us hope and comfort and enjoyment in our work. Your work isn't everything. Jesus is. And when Christ is all to you, no matter what frustrations you experience in work, no matter what hardships you encounter, you can take joy in him in the midst of it. Let's pray together.